Hi, Pastor John here. Thanks for joining us. Our sermon for today is all about WBF and its structure. We're going to talk about elders. We're an elder-led church, and the sermon asks the question, what is an elder and why do we have them? Now, our main passage is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, but we'll be taking a look at a few other passages as well. We'll see four sets of scriptural guidelines for elders. Set 1, why are we an elder-led church? Set 2, what is an elder? Set 3, what does he do? And set 4, how will we know him when we see him? Now, we'll get to our service in a moment, but we'd love to hear from you and let you know that there are several ways you can get in touch with us and several ways you can participate in our ministry. I'll have all that information for you immediately after the service. Meanwhile, let's join the service. Hey, before we get to our passage today, there's a couple of things I want to share with you. Uh, one of them is, uh, we're having an Apollos class. I've been in touch with some of you uh, personally, but uh, it's open enrollment. Uh, if you're not familiar with Apollos, um, it's our uh, internal course and internal curriculum designed to help you read and understand your Bibles a little bit better. And also to help you get more familiar with who we are, who the EFCA is, and that sort of thing. Ten classes. Uh, I think we're, we, we had originally talked about Saturday mornings. I think we're going to shift this to Thursday night. I'll talk to those of you that have signed up and see if that accommodates your schedule. But if you're interested, we would love to have you as part of our class. Uh, a, a lot of people hear about papers that need to be written, study needs to be done, and everything. They say, oh, I don't do that sort of thing. Let me tell you something. The uh, last two sessions ago, we graduated a 10-year-old. Uh, who had done all the work and actually written a personal doctrinal statement. Uh, now, if you think that a 10-year-old's smarter than you, then come and talk to me afterwards, okay? But the work is easier than it, it seems, and it's also harder than it seems, because it does take some time. Uh, so, I'd really love to have you in class. It's our first step into finding out where your gifts are and where you fit in the body. Um, if you have any questions, just talk to me about it. We will start class on December the 2nd. Is that the right date, Peter? Uh, so uh, Peter will be helping us and, and Lois as well. Uh, and we're, we're going to have a really good time. I promise you, I promise you that if you haven't taken this class uh, and you, you are diligent in doing the work to it, it will change your life. Not, not because the curriculum is so great, but because this is a deep dive into Scripture. You learn how to... Uh, interpret scripture, learn how to read it in context, uh, even a little bit of original language work, it, it's easier than it sounds, okay, but it's a deep dive into scripture and what scripture means and how it applies to your life. That's probably the most important part. So, Apollo starts December 2nd. Let me know if you have any questions. Now, November 2nd, we have a town hall. Um, we, pardon me? November the 7th, we have a town hall. Thank you, Diane. Uh, and that will be live streamed. We're working out how to keep uh, the live stream somewhat confidential. Uh, it'll be here in person. It'll be right after the second service. We have two issues that we're going to address at the town hall. One of them is the elder candidate, Jimmy, uh, who we will have the opportunity to examine during the town hall, before it and after it as well. If you have questions you'd like to ask them and you're not comfortable with the town hall setting, email us or mail us the question, and we'll, we'll address them. Uh, the other issue that we will address at the town hall is the proposed budget for 2022. Uh, so keep that on your calendars. Uh, it'll be immediately after the first service, 
and we will end that service in time for us to be able to spend some time together uh, just doing church business. So speaking, speaking of church business, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And while you're finding that, let me tell you about uh, Kelly and I returned to Warrington Bible Fellowship in 1999. Uh, we had been gone since 1992. Uh, while we were away, we learned some harsh lessons about church and how it runs. And I'll tell you something. We, we ended up here um, somewhere in, I think, September of 99, wounded and bleeding a bit. Uh, so I hear frequently from people that have been hurt by church. Uh, we understand that. And the, uh, uh, you know, part, part of our wounding was, was our own problem, mostly mine. Uh, but part of it was on behalf of one of the churches we attended before. Uh, so I came here acutely aware of the damage that a church can do uh, when church becomes more important than people. <laughs> Uh, and so we, we kind of carried that with us. But I also came with a, a perception of what church leadership uh, looked like. Now, it's ironic as I look back upon it because uh, we fell victim to the leadership of a church that was led by one person. And so, but when I got here in 1999, I thought church needed to be led by the pastor. This idea of elders and deacons and boards and that sort of thing were, I thought just wasn't biblical. But Warrington Bible Fellowship had an elder board that, that was in charge of overseeing the church. And so I didn't agree with that, but uh, I had been encouraged to stay, and we did. And I, I'd been encouraged to allow ourselves to heal, and, and we did. And the more I was encouraged to look into uh, the concept of elders, the more I thought, well, maybe there's something to it. Now, that's long before uh, I, I was equipped with the tools I needed to dig deep into Scripture and understand exactly what it said, but I started looking and thinking, well, maybe this is not such a bad idea. So, I'm here today to tell you, if you're not familiar with us, that we are an elder-led church. And for some of, the, some of you, this is going to be a reminder of how we're structured. For newer folks, you're going to find out a little bit about how we operate. Uh, so, our sermon today is called, What's an Elder and Why Do We Have Them? What are they doing here? And we've got four sets of scriptural guidelines for, for the elders, and here they are. Why are we an elder-led church? What is an elder? What does an elder do? And how are we going to know them when we see them? So, our primary passage is going to be 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. You open to it. Uh, Diane read a passage from Titus. Uh, we'll be looking at other passages as well. So, let, let's take a look at the first set of guidelines uh, for elders. Why are we an elder led church? We believe in the plurality of elders, the plurality of leadership. And we believe that this is portrayed in the Bible. Now, anybody who's become an elder candidate has seen a book by a man named Alexander Strauch, and uh, it, it's called Biblical Eldership. It's a big, thick book. Jimmy's working his way through it right now, and you go to him and ask him about it, and I believe, uh, you know, it, it, it can be a little dry. You know, it, it can be a little bit of work getting through it, but I believe that if you can read the first three chapters of biblical eldership and still want to be an elder at the end, you're probably qualified and ready to go. Uh, because he hits hard on this. 
So here's what Alexander Strout has to say about plurality of leadership. By definition, the elder structure of government is a collective form of leadership in which each elder shares equally the position, authority, and responsibility of the office. Now, we see this exemplified in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 14 says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. He uses plural purposely here. The elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So, James thought that there was a plurality of leadership. Paul did too. Uh, We see this in Acts 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, plural, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, uh, Paul mentions elders in the plural again in Acts chapter 20, 17 and 18, and in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Peter gets into the act as well. He mentioned the plurality of elders in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. As a matter of fact, every time the office of elder is brought up in the New Testament, and it's 36 times in all, it is plural. So according to our best understanding of the Scriptures, that would be the elders and the pastors, me and Scott, there should be a team of elders who are responsible for the spiritual welfare and health of the congregation. This is why we're an elder-led church. Now, again, this is according to our best understanding of the Scriptures, and we've spent a great deal of time in it. It doesn't mean that those other churches out there that are not elder-led are going to hell. It just means that they've got a different understanding of the Scriptures. It's okay. It's okay. If they're preaching the gospel, there are brothers and sisters. We have a little bit of a difference in governance. Uh, we have a little bit of a difference in the way we look at church history and the way we look at scripture. It's all right if another church is not like ours. But we believe that this is an example of church government that is established by the apostolic writings. Plurality of leadership, plurality of elders. So what is an elder? That takes us to our second guidelines. So the word comes from the Greek word prosbuteros. Now, it, it, literally what it means is an older man over, charged with overseeing and governing the church. Now, let, let, me, let me open up a can of worms. We are a complementarian church. That means that we believe that the leadership of the church should be men. Now, listen to me carefully. Don't shut me down. <laughs> a lot of damage has been done with that concept in the church. A lot of damage has been done with male headship in the church. And we have to be aware of the fact that people have been hurt over this issue. And so a lot of times when, when we hear male headship, we hear male control. We hear, hear male power. We hear male authority. And a lot of times churches have been so dictatorial in this sort of thing that people have been hurt. That's not where we are. We believe that the scriptures clearly indicate that a man should be the elder, or men should be elders. But that doesn't mean that they are kings over the church. It doesn't mean that they lord over the church. So we firmly believe, and I did a sermon on this, I think it was three years ago now, that uh, here at Warrington Bible Fellowship, we want to be able to define the role of women by what they can do, not what they can't do. 
I did that sermon. Somebody came up and said, I've never belonged to a church. They find women by what they can't do. I said, so women led worship at your other churches? Oh, no, they can't do that. So, subliminally, these things happen. Okay? And so we want to be aware of the fact that, that women are a vital part of our church, just like they're a vital part of our marriages to those that are married, and that they have gifts and that they have things to offer the church, and we should allow the women to function in their area of gifting, whatever that may be. Okay? Now, again, there are different opinions on that. It's okay. It's okay. If, if, if the church down the street says, well, men are in control, women got to do whatever they, they're told to do, that's fine. Let them be. Okay? Here we see that role of women as having a bit more freedom than some traditional complementarian churches do. But we believe that the role of elder is reserved for men. So, they're not rulers over the church. In other words, the elders have to be careful not to become domineering and dictatorial. If we're to follow the example of Jesus, an elder, although he has authority, is primarily a servant albeit a servant that has to one day give an account for those that he has been charged to care for. So, as leaders of the church, we will all stand before the Lord, not unto our condemnation, but we will answer. And I'll tell you something, when, when uh, I was ordained for the first local council, they asked me what passage they wanted to read in my ordination, and uh, I asked them to read Ezekiel 34. Because Ezekiel 34 addresses the poor shepherds of Israel. God wants to know what they've done with his sheep. And somewhere in the middle of Ezekiel 34, God says, you have fattened yourselves on their flesh. So the answer that the poor shepherds of Israel had was, what did we do with your sheep? We ate them. And that's not what they're there for. So we have to give, as leaders, we have to give an accounting, which means that we have to function with compassion and mercy and forgiveness and, and some wisdom the same way that we have a relationship with our Father in heaven. We have to reflect that to our relationship with the congregation. So the elders have authority. And, and this is clear. We have to understand that as well. It's in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an, ex an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So what is an elder? He's an overseer. He's an overseer that has authority to guide and to nourish the congregation, to help the congregation go, grow. So what does he do? These are a third set of guidelines. Yes, the elders have authority, but they're to use their authority to care for, to guard over, to nourish and love the congregation the way Jesus loves his disciples and those who follow him. They don't dominate their flock. They, listen carefully, serve. They serve. And they serve in a lot of different ways. You don't always see them. That's not always evident. But here's some of the things the elders do. Uh, they pray. They enact church discipline. I've got to tell you something. Uh, I've been on the elder board for about 19 years now. I think we've gone through church discipline four times in those 19 years. So, and, and let me explain church discipline because right away, those who aren't familiar with it see us standing over somebody with it saying, Read your Bible! How come you're not reading your Bible? We need to discipline you. Church discipline is enacted against somebody who is in blatant rebellion 
against God and against his word and is unwilling to repent. And we've been through this four times. I've got to tell you something. It's the most excruciating thing an elder board can do. Because we sit there and we're committed to not judging people, not evaluating them, but holding them to the standard of Scripture. It is the hardest thing that we've done in nearly 20 years. And twice as we've enacted church discipline, we've seen those people repent. They've been restored to fellowship, restored to ministry, and, and integrated back into the body. The other two times, they just left. I'm not going through this. That's okay, too. That doesn't mean they're not a brother or sister, but church discipline is one of the most difficult things we do. The elders monitor our finances. Now, they're not, they're not going over them with a fine-tooth comb, but they, they watch over them. They oversee the staff. They hold the staff. They hold Scott and I accountable for what we do, for what we teach. The elders teach, and they write, and one of their primary functions is to establish the doctrinal, theological direction of the church. That sits on their shoulders. And they make sure that all of our programs, all of our classes, all of our preaching, all of our teachers align rightly with our best efforts in interpreting the Scriptures. So the things that you see when we've got the women doing a Bible study like Lois is leading, uh, when, we, when we see these things that like Charles is doing on Wednesday night with the men and Wayne's helping them and, and what Pat's doing on Sunday morning with the men, when we see all that, that that's not just random stuff, folks. Uh, that is coordinated. And the elders take a look at those programs and those curriculums to make sure they're in harmony with who we are and what our best understanding of Scriptures are. So all of this goes into one pot and it falls at the feet of the elders. So serving like that is not always easy. Congregations can be diverse. We have a diverse congregation. Our elders make their decisions prayerfully, always trying to maintain an attitude of what is best and what is healthiest for the congregation. And they do this with tremendous grace and tremendous patience. And i got to tell you something. It's taken an even more amount of grace and patience over the last 18 months. There is so much division. There's so much anger out there in the world. So many different opinions floating around. And this person said this. And that person said, no, that's not right. And this person said, no, he's not right either. And everybody's saying, I'm right, I'm right. Do this, do this, do this. And it's just all over the place. And it's been going on for nearly two years. And sometimes, sometimes that seeps into the church. It's easy to question decisions, isn't it? And we've had a lot of questions about decisions made, particularly over the last 18 months. Decisions had to be made. You know, when we, we originally went into lockdown, were we going to open? Were we going to close? Were we going to be outside? Were we going to be inside? We had never done any of this before. I'm a member of several pastors' groups, and they had never done it before either. Everybody's calling me, go, what are you doing? I don't know, what are you doing? And some of the things they were doing, we didn't really feel were right for our congregation, and some of the things we were doing, they didn't think were right for theirs. It doesn't mean any of them were right or wrong. It just meant that that's where we were going forward. So are we going to open or we close? Are we going to ask people to wear masks? Are we going to not ask them to wear masks? That was a huge issue. I'm not coming if everybody's got to wear a mask. I'm not coming if nobody wears, is wearing a mask. And we're sitting right in the middle of that. Are we going to be in person? Are we going to be virtual? Are we going to do both? What does that look like? No matter what decision was made, 
there were some folks that would disagree. That's okay. It's okay to disagree as long as we don't get angry about it. And so it's not that we have these disagreements, it's how we handle them. And I watched the elders very patiently, very methodically going through and making these decisions and every one of them was made with the heart of what would be best for this congregation. I love that about our elder board. Because when the chips are down, they don't do what's best for them, they do what's best for the congregation. Now we've had it better here at Warrington Bible Fellowship than a lot of other churches. Now I just spent a couple of days up in Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania for the district off, uh, for the district conference and uh, they had a lot of fellowship time built into this conference so there was a lot of sitting in the lobby and talking to people. And everybody, it, 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 it's just the same as it was 18 months ago when somebody sits down and goes, so what are your church doing? Where'd you get that idea? How's it work? What do you think about this? You know, we're all still trying to walk through the situation. And I'm finding out that the congregation here has really held together a lot better than the congregations at some of the other churches. Not all of them, you know. Uh, but, you know, everybody's trying to make these decisions. Everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. But God, listen carefully, God has been preparing Warrington Bible Fellowship, you and me, for a time such as this. He's been equipping us with the tools that we need to navigate a really difficult situation. Watch this, okay? Our theme for 2020 was treat each other as more significant than yourself. And the, the banner we had was put our love into action. Put our love into action. Now, this was before there were any lockdowns, before there were any restrictions, before there was any controversy over masks and vaccinations and all that other stuff we get preoccupied with that really doesn't have any eternal value. Okay? So we started saying we need to put our love in action amongst ourselves and outside the walls of the church. Now that came out of Philippians 2.1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and any sympathy, complete my joy, Paul's joy, by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. We are never going to get through the mask issue if we're counting ourselves as more significant than the people around me. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now that was 2020. That led us into the great lockdown and the pandemic that has impacted the entire world. Here's 2021. Let your love be genuine. Let your love be genuine. Now, Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's not what I see on social media. I see my rights are being taken. I'm going to fight. You're wrong. This political party is evil. 
those people are bad, keep them away from me. I see all this stuff on social media, and my heart breaks because it creeps into the news. When's the last time you saw the news? Maybe when I was a kid, somebody just telling me what happened instead of telling me what to think. All that stuff is out there. God has led us for the last two years to treat each other as more important than ourselves and to let our love be genuine. Now the elders have led the way in both of these activities. They've made themselves an example as a way of encouraging you, of nourishing you, of caring for you, for your soul. That's that's an elder. That's what an elder does. The answer to our third guideline for elders is an elder serves. Let's take a look at this fourth guideline. It tells us how to know an elder when we see one or how to examine someone to determine if they qualify. Now, I know Jimmy's really looking forward to his time standing before you because everybody's going to be nice to him, right? Now, I would, I would suggest to you to take these guidelines and, and go deep with them. Ask probing questions. You know, everybody wants to know, you know, what, what is your background? We, we need to know those things. Where'd you come from? You know, what's your theology? We need to know those things. But, but li- listen to this out of, out of 1 Timothy, our, our passage for this morning. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must also have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So this is, this is the classic definition of what an elder should look like, what the qualifications are. Now, if we combine those with the passage we heard earlier, Titus 1, 5 through 9, Paul adds this in his note to Titus. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, and the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. There's a lot in there. And there are a lot of opportunities to misinterpret what's being said here. So let me give you the John Kavakis version of what all this says. 
Using both of these passages, we get a very tidy, very concise description of what an elder should look like. And this is important for us today because we have this opportunity to examine one of our candidates for elders before we vote for them. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that process will begin on November 7th at our town hall. And here, so here's what's expected. Here, here, here are the qualifications for an elder. Just boiled down to something a little simpler. They have to be above reproach. Well, what does that mean? That means they have to have a good reputation, not just in the church, but in the town. They have to be a man of integrity. He may be accused of things. Now, that happens from time to time. Did you hear this was happened? Did you hear that was going on? There may be accusations, but the accusations should not hold up under close examination. He has to be the husband of one wife. Now, listen carefully, because there's a whole body of teaching on this, and we've dug deep into this because we have a number of people in the church and on the elder board that have been married before. But... This doesn't necessarily mean, husband and one wife, number one, that they have to be married. It just means if they are married, they should be faithful and true to the one that they're married to. So what we're talking about is there should be fidelity in the marriage relationship. The elder should be a one-woman man. They don't have to be married, and divorce is not the issue here. The issue is whether or not they're faithful to the one they're married to. Now, there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed if, if there's a divorce in there, and we're happy to address them. But generally, you know, what, what happened with me when I went for ordination with EFCA uh, was, you know, they, I had to write a personal history, and I, I had to tell them I was divorced in 1979. And so they said, well, was, you know, does anybody, can anybody testify that you were divorced before you were saved? And the only one that could do that that wasn't Kelly was my mother-in-law. <laughs> and so she wrote a letter to the EFCA, said, yeah, that was before he got saved. And the EFCA said, well, we feel that falls under grace. And we don't have to worry about that. So grace should, should characterize our attitude about our elder candidates. Uh, so is there repentance? Do we understand that something was done wrong? Did they get divorced and it wasn't their fault? So if it was for adultery, there are a lot of things that enter into this. And so we have to be very careful not to prejudge somebody. This isn't talking about necessarily somebody being married to only one person for their entire life. It's talking about being faithful because that's a trait of God. So it says that they should have children. And the, the word here is very important. It is technon. Okay, They should have children who believe. Uh, now, this can be interpreted two different ways. And as an elder board, we interpreted both ways because technon can mean children that are not of an adult age. And so the children who understand the word, who are introduced to the word, uh, who are actively coming to church, uh, and we've done the best we can to educate our children in the ways of the Lord. Now, uh, I know a lot of you, I know a lot of you that have children, and I know that not all of our kids have grown up the way we wanted them to. And some of them are struggling, and some of them are not with the Lord. That is between them and the Lord. Okay? If we have ushered them into the presence of the church, if we've subjected them to the teaching of the Word, if we've done the best we can to show them how to model Jesus Christ, we're okay, because the Word here is children, technon, not of an adult age. Now, the other way that this can be interpreted is if you're the spiritual father of 
uh, if you have discipled somebody. Uh, and I kind of lean that way on this. If we have discipled them faithfully, if uh, there are people that are in the kingdom because of our presence, because of our introduction of the gospel into their lives, well, then we meet these qualifications. So it's either children not of an adult age or spiritual children. Uh, we see it both ways. And, and so we don't see this requirement as extending to the adult offspring of an elder uh, because they're responsible to the Lord on their own. So he's supposed to manage himself well, uh, manage his household well, and uh, this is an interesting one uh, because, believe it or not, all the elders we have here are normal people, and they have normal families, which means that we all have dysfunctional families. Am I right? I mean, we all look at our family and go, what's wrong with my family? You know, their family looks so great over there. Well, you know, the elders are no different. We're just normal people with normal families, and problems come up. Uh, you know, in particular with the extended families, people stumble, people fall, people make mistakes. Some people end up in the hospital, some people end up in jail. And so this doesn't necessarily mean that the elder has to step down because somebody in his family has had problems. It's not that you have problems, it's how you handle the problems. It's how you navigate the problems. Everybody has problems. Say that with me. Everybody has problems. The elders are not exempt from having a problem. Having a problem does not indicate that an elder is not a godly man. But how he handles that problem may give you a real good clue as to whether or not he understands the scriptures and is applying them to his life. So it doesn't mean that we're problem-free. He should be keeping his children under control with all dignity. <laughs> this is a great one. Uh, this is not a mandate to have perfect children. Uh, I've heard the echoes. I've heard it about my kids. You let your kids run around the church like that, I don't know how you can be a pastor. You're supposed to have your kids under control. And I want to go, I don't know, do you do that? Do you have your kids under control? I mean, they get a certain age when they're going to run around. You know, again, it's, it's how we handle these problems. But it doesn't mean that we're supposed to have perfect children, that they're all supposed to sit there clean with their hair combed and everything, sitting in the corner going, would you repeat that scripture one more time? I mean, they're going to be kids, right? It's a directive to have our children under control and have some manner of discipline and, and, and to, to teach them that they're supposed to honor their parents and supposed to respect the people around them. Uh, not, and, and children that are not in open, blatant, consistent rebellion against the Lord. So an elder has to be temperate which means he has to be sober and self-controlled. He can't be flying off in fits of anger. He has to be prudent, self-restrained, not erratic in following his passions, darting here and darting there and doing this and doing that. He has to be respectable in town and in the church. He has to be orderly. He has to be decent, not having a bad reputation in the community because that would be a stain upon the church. He has to be hospitable. It's to be friendly and kind and loving to strangers and brothers and sisters in the faith. He has to be able to teach, which means he has to be able to communicate Christian teaching, to be able to communicate the gospel. He should not be addicted to wine. Now, that doesn't mean that if an elder has a bottle of beer or a bottle of wine in his refrigerator or in his wine rack, <gasps> wine rack. It doesn't mean there's something wrong. It means that they're not alcoholic. They're not abusing alcohol. They're not overdoing it. A little bit of wine is good for the stomach. 
He should, <laughs> and a marriage. <laughs> that wasn't my wife, was it? <laughs> he should not be pugnacious. Oh, that's a big word. He should not, should not be physically or verbally violent or confrontational in an angry manner. He should be gentle. He should be fair, equitable, appropriate, yielding when necessary. And sometimes when yielding is not necessary, but it's better for the health of the congregation. So those are the things that we need to keep in mind as we examine our elder candidate. And, you know, so think about those things. Look at the, pa- the passages. And, and when Jimmy comes up for examination, let, let this influence the type of questioning, you know. I, you know, the, one of the favorite questions that every elder gets and the deacons get and I got when I was up for pastor was, what's your vision for the church? And, you know, that's a good question. We should be thinking about where we're headed and that sort of thing. But elders aren't, I mean, nowhere in these requirements are elders required to have a vision for the church. And we all know uh, that whatever we have as a vision for the church, that in itself needs to be flexible because God changes our situation daily. And if we haven't learned anything over the last 18 months, that should be one of them. We all had plans for 2020. Then we made plans for 2021. Now we're afraid to make plans for 2022. You know, so what is the plan? I don't know. My plan is to come in on Sunday and preach the word of God and hope that God allows us to have another Sunday after that. Uh, so uh, vision is good, but not necessary. So there's our four scriptural guidelines for elders. This is what governs why we are an elder-led church. The scriptures, we believe, display a, an example of plurality of leadership in the church. What is an elder and an overseer given the charge of caring for your soul, for your spirit, for your eternal destiny? What does he do? Well, he serves. He serves by praying and teaching and establishing a doctrinal foundation for our church and loving and at all times sometimes disciplining. How are we going to know him? We're going to, he's going to be a living example of the scriptures. Uh, these things describe an elder, but I just want you to think about this for a second. Because it, it doesn't make the elder some kind of super spiritual person. Matter of fact, it doesn't make him any different than what we should be trying to live. There's nothing in there that we should not all aspire to. So he just becomes an example of what it looks like when we're growing in our faith and maturing in our knowledge and awareness of the Word of God and His, His character and nature. The elders should set the bar for daily, practical, Christian living. And it should be set at such a height that we can all follow that. That we can all do it. Because these qualifications describe a Christian we're an elder-led church. I spent a lot of time since 1999 diving into these scriptures, and the more I do, the more I'm convinced that WBF follows a scriptural model for leadership. Why is this important? I, I think it may be more important now than ever before. Brothers and sisters, I, I think we're standing in the middle of a historic moment. I've talked to you about this before. 
And let me tell you something again. Half, two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the people I'm talking to, uh, in particular at the district conference, are waiting for things to go back the way they were. It ain't going to happen. Nobody's going to wake up tomorrow morning and go, oh, the culture's on the wrong path, let's go back to the old one. It ain't going to happen. So a lot of the things that we see out there, listen carefully, that are so abhorrent to us as mature Christians are being exemplified by the next generation of leaders. This is why I hate getting involved in politics. We don't understand that the person that insults us, <laughs> that, that renders our sensibilities as non-significant <laughs> was elected. They were elected. Nobody walked in the office and said, I think I'm going to be governor today. I think I'm going to be a senator. I think I'm going to be a candidate for president. They are elected. Which means that somewhere, somehow, there was a majority of the people that thought they should be in office. We're surrounded by a culture that doesn't care for us. And I've got to tell you something. We're so surprised. <gasps> oh, we'll just get the next guy in office. Everything will be fine. It's not going to be. We're told. Why are you surprised at the fiery deal that comes upon you? I, Peter's. Didn't we tell you this was going to happen? So I feel, and, and here, here's my heart, and this is the heart of the elders. I've had several people say, well, why, are you, why are you going so slow through the end of Luke? This is a really important part. Because this is where we see Jesus rise up to everything he's supposed to be. This is where he says, the last teaching he has for his disciples has got to be the most important, isn't it? I mean, he's in Caesarea Philippi. He says, listen, uh, i got to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. They go, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. That's going to happen. Well, it's happening. And, and so he keeps talking to his disciples about mercy and compassion and grace and faithfulness to the Word of God. And don't be like the Pharisees who are self-righteous and think they're so right on everything. Oh, we got the law, we got the government, we got everything nailed down. You need to become just like us. He said, don't do that. And when you do what I'm telling you to do, the world's going to hate you. Watch what they do to me, he says, because they're going to do that to you. Ten years ago, if anybody had told me about this, I would say, no, it's not going to happen in my time. I pray that it doesn't. But I feel that my obligation to you is to give you the tools that you need to survive and thrive in the environment that's coming. So we're going to be hard on the teaching of the Word. We're going to be hard on expressing these things in our classes. Because when I stand before the Lord... And he says, what did you do with my sheep? 
I want to be able to say I taught him as best I could. I, I yielded the Spirit as much as I could and allowed him to speak to me and through me. And I listened to my elders because they're the ones that are going to be giving accounting as well. Not a popular message today. I hear it. Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about sin. People don't like it. They're going to like standing before their judge a lot less. And it's my job. It's our job. To share the truth with people in a loving and compassionate way. And the elders are the ones that will lead us there. So as we examine Jimmy, keep that in mind because we're going to have to move forward through this mess, whether we like it or not. And I pray that we do it in a manner that honors the Lord and honors our calling and keeps the fact in mind that we're dealing with souls not issues. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you've given us this structure. Lord, we're doing the best we can to follow you, uh, but we thank you because we drop the ball from time to time. We, we don't always work at peak capacity, Father. We thank you for your grace and mercy that understands that. We pray, Father, your Spirit would lead the way. Your Spirit would take hold of this church, Lord, and structure it the way you want it structured, Father, and move us forward the way you want us to move forward. That we might do it in a manner that honors you, Father, but honors each other at the same time. Oh, Lord, we've got different opinions on different issues. But we understand that that day that we stand before you, there will only be one issue that is of any eternal importance at all. And that is, where are you in relation to my Son, Jesus Christ? Lord, let us be ever holding that in our hearts. Let it flow from us as rivers of living water and truth. And we pray that you would have your way with this elder candidate and this process of choosing him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back in Luke again next week. Pastor John here once again, and let me thank you again for joining us. If you'd like to participate in our ministry, there's three ways to get a hold of us. You can find us on the World Wide Web at wbfva.org. We're on Facebook at WBFVA. And we're also on YouTube at WBFEA. Maybe you're watching us there now. So we would love to hear from you. If you have prayer requests, if you, have, if you just want to talk to somebody, give us a call, drop us a line, send me a note. I would love to be able to chat with you for a while. Before you go, though, let me ask you to do this favor for me. Would you go down to the bottom of the screen on the YouTube channel and give us a thumbs up if you listen to our broadcast. Even subscribe to our channel so that you can keep up with our teaching. God bless you, and thanks again for joining us.